Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, August 7, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is someone whose work we've been following since his days at CrooksAndLiars.com. I'm talking about the great David Nywert. David's the author of The Eliminationists, about the hate speech and violent rhetoric that's overtaken the Republican Party and the White House. David's most recent book is called Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. Today we're going to talk about the mainstreaming of fascism and racism in America and how it's led to the epidemic of gun massacres here. By the way, there's a hell of a thunderstorm happening right over my head, so don't sweat the loud booming noises on today's show. Oh, and if you dig this episode, please help support this show on our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. And now let's talk with the great David Nyward. So, uh, so how have you been? Uh, busy as hell, <laughs> as you can imagine. And, you know, I'm not surprised at all. I wrote a post earlier this summer saying, well, it looks like it's going to be a long, hot summer. And it is. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? I want to dig into uh, all of this stuff. But before we launch in, I mean, there's a key word in all of this. This is sort of your chief wheelhouse. Uh, and I want to just get a sense of what eliminationism is and, and how it's manifesting itself in, inside the United States. Well, eliminationism is a term I got from Daniel Goldhagen, uh, who wrote this book titled uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners. And it was this, mm-hmm. this is actually a somewhat controversial book about uh, the um, how basically ordinary Germans uh, had a major role in the actual murders that uh, happened in the Holocaust, yeah. which is all factually true. And... Uh, he had a term for it uh, that he described as somewhat unique form of anti-Semitism that was popular in Germany at the time. He called it eliminationist. And um, I actually, at the time I read the book, I was in the middle of researching my book on uh, the Japanese-American internment, uh, which later became Strawberry Days. Yeah. Uh, and... 
uh, I was really struck by uh, the you know the material that I was reading at the time mm. of the anti-Japanese um, uh, campaign that existed between you know 1900 and uh, 1942, and its similarity to the as not just the the anti-immigrant campaign that we see today against Latinos, right. but also how it also all featured exactly this same kind of rhetoric, this eliminationist rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up in the West, in the interior West. I'm from Idaho and was always a history buff and was actually, you know, intimately familiar with the whole history of the Native American genocide. Right. And that totally featured that featured all these examples of what we would call eliminationist rhetoric mm. eliminationist rhetoric is essentially um rhetoric that's designed to demonize and dehumanize uh other people uh groups of other people uh on the basis of you know the, the purification of the society yep. uh, as as necessary for the purification of the society and in order to preserve the society, you know, through this purification, mm -hmm. yeah, right. and you do, you purify by eliminating these undesirable elements, and you 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 uh, one of the ways you do that, of course, is you depict them as uh, objects fit only for elimination, such as vermin or diseases, yeah, or sewage, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and this, and yeah, human excrement. So this is, and this is what, uh, you know, was, uh, really noticeable in the rhetoric that I was also, have also studied for many years out of the Patriot militia movement and mm. the right, both of which really deployed have always, one of the, their distinctive features was the, eliminationist rhetoric not just the rhetoric but sort of the, the eliminationist um uh agenda that they had which was their solution to everything was to get rid of other people right, right. by hook by crook by any means necessary mm -hmm. and so um this was and i became really concerned in uh going into the 2000s after 9 11 the extent of eliminationist rhetoric that we were starting to see yeah. it was it was directed at obviously Muslims uh, after 9/11, mm -hmm. but it was also directed at liberals for being insufficiently patriotic, uh, and it was uh, also increasingly directed at uh, immigrants, Latino immigrants, is in the form of uh, the Minuteman movement and the whole Lou Dobbs style of of nativism that was bubbling up and becoming really part of mainstream conservatism. That's right. And so I was really increasingly concerned. You know, I, I grew up Republican in a in Southern Idaho, but I was one of those creatures that's now extinct called a moderate Republican. <laughs> right. And honestly, my politics since then have really gone much more liberal because uh, after uh, years of being accused of being a communist, I just decided it was <laughs> I would uh, embrace embrace my inner liberal, embrace my inner Ted Kennedy or something. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> going back to, uh, to 2009 when you originally published uh, The Eliminationists, I mean, did you ever have uh, any sort of inkling that 10 years later, 
at one of those eliminationists would be president of the United States. I mean, beyond just um, an eliminationist foreign policy or beyond just uh, some sort of fringe candidate, maybe a third party candidate talking about uh, terrible, terrible things and using that kind of rhetoric. We now actually have a president who's not just using the rhetoric, but he's actually a consequence of it. Don't you think where he's adopted a lot of that language that we hear on AM talk radio and Fox news channel, right? Oh, well, that's essentially that's much of the essence of Donald Trump's presidency is yeah. his eliminationism. I mean, he started out, you know, talking about you know, Mexicans being rapists and criminals. And, of course, his uh, his career was built on a racist conspiracy theory, the birther conspiracy theory. Yep. So, um, and, and, you know, um, I did a piece with Sarah Posner for Mother Jones that was part of a project that we did through summer of or, uh, beginning in spring of 2016 and continuing into that fall mm-hmm. uh, where we built a database about uh, around his many uh, interactions and connections with the radical right through that year. And, you know, we wound up being just massive. <laughs> yeah. And we did, piece, we did a piece that ran in October 2016 uh, that, you know, explored the extent of uh, Donald Trump's relationship with the radical right. And we really talked about this sort of what I called a three-step tango, a little dance that he does with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll he'll d- first send a signal to the radical right that he's their guy, that he's supporting them, such as his initial refusal to um, denounce David Duke when he was asked about it by Jake Tapper. Yeah. And, and two days later, he issues a an anodyne uh, statement saying denouncing white supremacy, just as he did the other day after <laughs> El Paso. Yeah. And the thing about these denunciations is that nobody believes them, particularly not the white supremacists who see him as their guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the important thing to understand. He's there. There's been a whole raft of hate crimes in this country and nearly half of these hate crimes involve people using trump's uh name to threaten people they they shout trump's name as a means of threatening people you know if that were happening to me i I would want to say something about that you know because i guess it's a matter of basic common decency but uh, and it's pretty obvious that this man utterly lacks that sense at all. Yeah. So. And it seems to me as if on top of I mean, the, the toxic mix of eliminationism and the concept of who me? I didn't do anything. What are you <laughs> what are you talking? I don't use that language. That's crazy. Here, listen to me do this teleprompter speech in which I condemn all of those things. And oh, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge at the end. Right. Right. Um, oh, yes. And let's have uh, let's make it. Yeah. Let, let's pass a gun law and let's, let's also throw some immigration stuff into that bill. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, one of the primary concerns among normals, you and I, but basically the rest of the uh, the world that sees Trump for who he is, is one of the concerns that we have is the legitimization of racism, even fascism in this country to an extent. How do we prevent this uh, rising tide? Obviously, it feels like I think a sense of despair in a lot of us, uh, a sense of frustration and depression insofar as 
we feel like there's there's no one to say, okay, enough already. This has to end. It's gone too far. So how do we shove all of that horrible crap back into the tube? Well, I, I don't think we can. And honestly, it's probably just as well that we can't because it's uh, – I've been jumping up and down about this stuff for a long time, as you know, Bob. Oh, and yeah. Over that – period of time i've gotten a lot of pats on the head and and being told oh that's very interesting you know keep doing that work that's really cool uh but <laughs> you totally ignored right yeah 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 yeah, yeah thanks uh, i appreciate the pat on the head but i would really appreciate it if policymakers would pay attention to you know the these rising threats yeah, i mean it's, it's really seen i think by a lot of the press as being just sort of this fringe side thing oh that guy's talking about racism again and and, <laughs> and it's not considered like an actual serious policy discussion in some circles which has got to be immensely frustrating isn't it yeah yeah well the term alarmist was used quite a bit oh i'm sure when I first published The Eliminationists. So, um, but look, you know, that's, I, I, I don't care. I mean, it, yes, it's annoying as hell that, that being right doesn't actually get you a spot on yeah. TV news. Uh, that actually being wrong seems to get you a, a, land you a seat on Tucker Carlson it's anyway. Unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, we're looking at now an entire generation of younger men, mainly, who are further removed from the destructiveness of the historical destructiveness of fascism, as well as uh, racism and, and how it's manifested itself specifically in this country. Um, it just seems like as we move away from things like the Holocaust and as we move away from things like the fight for civil rights in the 60s and so on, that these younger generations are losing sight of the firsthand repercussions of the kind of language they're now dealing in, which is becoming radicalized online and so on, all the things that we've been hearing about with regard to the El Paso shooter. But, I mean, in a more general sense, too, I mean, we have an entire generation of Americans who are just like, oh, a Holocaust? What, when, oh, that was... Oh, it was so long ago. I don't even know what that was. Uh, is that just sort of contributing to all of this, too? Significantly. Uh, yeah, I think we have a real problem in terms of uh, not understanding our history. Not just not understanding, yeah, the, the Holocaust is one thing, but Americans have a really warped and very bizarre sense of their own history as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's—I I think we've got a whole generation of kids that don't understand— that the genocide of Native Americans was a real thing that yep. white people did, that the uh, era of uh, lynching that occurred between 1890 and 1940 mm -hmm. was one of the ugliest marks uh, on our on our history, and is something that we are still paying for. Is something that we're still dealing with consequences of, as was the hatred that. Uh, against Asian Americans, it was ginned up between 1900 and 1942, and culminated in us placing Japanese Americans in concentration camps, yeah. uh, and and on and on. You know that 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 same kind of bigotry has led to one injustice after another, and that you know this is this stuff's very real history, and that that this is part of what we actually have to grapple with, and pretending it away. Uh, is a recipe for disaster, which is what a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of American exceptionalists want to do. That this idea that uh, that America is just always great. Mm -hmm. 
has always been great. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love America as much as the next guy, but uh, I don't. <laughs> yeah. But I also have a very clear view of what we've done. And I, actually, I love it. I love our country enough that I really want to change it and make it better. Mm-hmm. It's that I is you know yeah. my criticism of our history isn't hatred; it's being realistic about what we've actually done. So yeah, I I don't know. Um, I, I think that there's been a lot of uh, unfortunately there isn't much teaching of this stuff in our schools, and so kids have a really warped view of. Race relations, why the world is where it is, you know, they uh, have a very facile and shallow understanding of the history of race relations in this country. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's been very easy for young white kids, particularly young suburban white kids, to revert to this uh uh, cheap white nationalism because it is based on a shallow understanding of history. I'm always looking at uh, in the context of Donald Trump, I'm always looking at two periods of time in American history and that is uh, the administration of Andrew Jackson, which Donald Trump has taken that, taken Andrew Jackson's to be some sort of hero, which is so utterly tragic given some of the things that Andrew Jackson was responsible for, including the Trail of Tears. And then um, the lead up to the Civil War, uh, which featured some of the harshest eliminationist rhetoric that we've ever seen from a group of uh, propagandists known as fire eaters who uh, made a big cause out of uh, warning Americans, warning white America about uh, miscegenation and all the rest of it, just basically demonizing black people as being, well, you know, if we if we start to give them their freedom, then they're going to rise up and, and destroy white America. All of the propaganda that we yes. heard that led up to the civil war. Right? Yeah. 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 That was, that was a big thing. There is a, there is a heavy sexual component to that. And uh, so much of the, the lynching era was predicated on this myth that, um, black uh, males were likely to rape white women. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that lynching era um, gave rise to an entire uh, form of, you know, and, and I think uh, Hollywood to a certain extent was responsible for this, too. But there was this attitude that what we need to do in order to unite the North and the South and specifically white people of the North and the South is to create a common enemy now. This is the best way, they thought, to recover from the divisions of the Civil War. Let's let's make black people, let's make freed slaves the common enemy between the North and the South. And let's do this by portraying them as being rapists. Hey, how? where have we heard that before? Let's portray them as being, you know, lazy dice playing. Uh, you know, it's just like you look at all of the... Uh, for example, the silent movies at the turn of the century. My God, some of the titles and descriptions of those movies are horrendous. Well, and we just heard it from the president talking about Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the same crap, the same stereotypes, the same stuff that, you know, black people are are associated with crime and disease and filth and rats. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, yeah, and they're lazy, blah 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 blah, you know, and rapists to boot. Yes, let's not forget they 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 want to <laughs> violate white womanhood. Yeah, well, there's there's there was movie after movie, including Birth of a Nation, that portrayed black people as raping white women, and then the of all people, the Ku Klux Klan comes in and saves yeah. the day, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's it, it, I mean, we wonder how this stuff gets planted, how these seeds get planted and all you got to do is look back at history It's not that difficult to find it's all there why oh why do we have a problem with racism in this country well there it is there's one of the main culprits especially when it comes to uh the first half of the 20th century well yeah and people forget that birth of a nation gave birth to hollywood that was the movie that made hollywood Mm -hmm. absolutely industry was scattered all around the country but after Birth of a Nation, the whole film industry moved to Hollywood because that was where that film was made. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I just and again, you know, you could list uh, dozens of movies at the time that were all geared toward perpetuating that those stereotypes and those yeah, awful sure. imagery. Yeah. Um, but you know, now what we see a lot of too that is immensely frustrating. On top of the the things that we see with our own uh, own two eyes, uh, the racism and the nationalism and all the rest of it, the white supremacy, and it's clear to us. But yet we're being gaslit by saying, no, 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 you guys, you're the ones who are the real racists. Like, for example, Trump did that today with uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, why, why are we looking at what I've said? Why don't we look at what they've said because of the Dayton shooter now? Um, explain the differences between Trump's rhetoric and the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, there's <laughs> been absolutely no uh compare you know ability to compare them because yeah. they don't even they don't exist in the same sphere um both sanders and warren are all about you know they they're talking about lifting people up um and yeah there's nothing in their rhetoric that would have inspired somebody to go off and start shooting people yeah. in a bar uh, unlike Donald Trump's rhetoric, which is so full of eliminationism that it basically is uh, an open encouragement for people to go shoot up something. And and so there's just there's really no comparison. And, yeah, it, it's ludicrous. I mean, if there had been any sense that this guy in Dayton actually was uh, – a real leftist other than by uh, claiming it as a front, uh, I would be surprised because uh, I'm having a real hard time envisioning someone who uh, did uh, porn grind music uh, actually being a, a sincere supporter of Elizabeth Warren. One of the things I think about, uh, David, in this era, um, and just in a general way, but most specifically when it comes to uh, eliminationism and this kind of uh, language that Donald Trump is using and that many of his supporters are now parroting and we see it on Fox News Channel and on uh, AM Talk Radio and, and obviously in some of the uh, forums like 4chan and 8chan. How do we police this language uh, 
without running headfirst into a First Amendment problem. I mean, this is the kind of a thing I'm trying to square in my head. How do we do that knowing that it's going to eventually be adjudicated by the Supreme Court, which could apply uh, the free speech clause and, and declare stuff like that to be unconstitutional? Well, I, I think it, it it's really key that um, you know, the First Amendment is about government behavior, so uh, it's only going to really come into play if the government actually starts regulating these social media platforms. Yeah, because then it's got the role of overseeing these things. So, um, and then then you actually do have First Amendment issue. But as long as these are privately owned platforms, nobody has an obligation to host somebody on their platform. Nobody has this. There, there is actually no obligation to make it open and available to just anybody who wants to join. If you have a platform, you should be able to say uh, who you're going to allow on and who you're not going to allow on. Right. So uh, it's just a matter of having uh, consistent uh, standards and enforcing them uh, in a smart fashion. I mean, one of the things that happens on Twitter a lot is that um, – White nationalists are incredibly adept at gaming Twitter's own rules to get around them. Yeah, and and this is one of the things that it actually happened to me. Uh, you know, I got suspended from Twitter for two weeks because uh, an alt writer with Pepe in his profile oh. reported me uh, for the, having my book cover uh, in my uh, profile, which featured little stars with clan hoods on them, oh. and. Twitter actually suspended me for my profile picture, and I refused to take it down for two weeks or to change it because I was uh, trying to uh, get their attention to the ridiculousness of this kind of policy. Because it means that what it means, you know, is that they can sit there and game Twitter's rules all day, but people who are actually doing serious reporting on these guys uh, is vulnerable to being shut down. Because uh, they actually, you know, put the hateful stuff that these guys say out there on the web so that people can see what they're saying, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I, I don't do this. I don't report on this stuff to help spread it. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> it's just insane yeah. that that was even... Uh, a thing that, oh my God, you've got stars that are in the shape of KKK hoods on your book cover, and this is a suspension-worthy trespass, even though we see Donald Trump inciting violence on his Twitter feed every damn day, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've been in a conversation with uh, some of the policy folks at Twitter since this happened, and uh, we're trying to talk our way through this because uh, it's it's an absurd policy and it it puts journalists at risk. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just at risk of being shut down, um, which is why I, I objected to it in the first place. I already seen you know my friend Michael Hayden, uh, Michael Edison Hayden, who writes for SPLC, uh, got shut down briefly by Twitter a few weeks before for essentially the same kind of thing for having reported on these guys. Wow. So, um, you know, it's uh, Twitter's really vulnerable to this kind of stuff and not just Twitter, but Facebook as well. They've, they, Facebook has done the same kind of thing to a couple of journalists that I know. Um, and it's, it's really, really counterproductive. Since, and, I mean, since you've talked to uh, people at Twitter, what's the process for, 
policing tweets like yours specifically? Like, do, is there do they have AI that goes through and evaluates these things, or is it actual real life human beings who look at a tweet and they mull it over? Is this, is this a violation? I don't know. Let's discuss it, and then they make a final decision. What? How do that? How does that all work? They do have AI that monitors this stuff and will flag it. Mm-hmm. There, uh, but then supplementing it is the reporting from other readers, from other users. So a neo-Nazi can go and report a journalist who's reporting on them, uh, get them suspended um, by, you know, uh, uh, reporting them for supposedly hateful content, which is nothing other than the journalistic uh, work that they do. So this is, which is just stupid, you know? (laughs) Yeah. so yeah, they and actually yes, a, a human being looked at the person who reported my case and decided he was right. So and I'm staggering. like, out of your goddamn mind. <laughs> yeah, that makes no goddamn sense. I mean, I you know again, obviously we see social media making uh, uh, mistakes like this all the time, so it's not breaking news. But whenever you see it happen. Man, it's confounding. There's no, there's no way to understand why that gets flagged, but then so many other things don't. Uh, there's just no consistency there, and we see it again most uh, most egregiously with the president of the United States and his use of Twitter. But you know, going back to um, what I was mentioning with regard to the First Amendment and, and solutions to all of this, I mean, is there a legislative solution, or should there be? Well, I, I don't know. I think that there are some things we could do legislatively. Uh, one of them is to, uh, I think that, um, that we need to think long and hard about, um, whether it's actually appropriate to allow people to, uh, deliberately publish false information. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think that that's a real serious ongoing issue that, uh, you know, the courts have said, well, yes. Is you can lie as a form of free speech, and I'm just like, you know, I don't know about that. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that that actually should be free speech to just deliberately lie. Right. Um, and so uh, these are kinds of. Let's just say that there are some really uh, serious issues that we need to consider. Uh, certainly, we need to understand that. Uh, as Karl Popper explained to many, uh, to you know, back in the 1940s, that um, you can't uh, you can't ha- maintain a civil society and a free marketplace of ideas if forces of hate and intolerance are permitted to operate freely within them. Mm-hmm. That those. You know, it's the question that I always get. Well, if you're so tolerant, why can't you be tolerant of these intolerant people? And it's it's actually a really simple answer. It's that tolerance and intolerance are like matter and antimatter. They can't exist in the same place. Yep. One destroys the other. Wow. And, and so um, we can't have an open marketplace of ideas if fascists are running around uh, freely participating in that because they're not interested in actually exchanging ideas. They're interested in dominating and uh, the scene, the discussion. They're interested in, in threatening and intimidating uh, voices, particularly Jewish or uh, minority voices or, you know, any kind of um, dissent at all. 
it's the opposite of free speech that they're practicing because they're they're actually trying to actively suppress other people's speech. Mm -hmm. We need to figure out ways to uh, be able to filter that stuff out. And right now, the best that we have is um, uh, on these social media platforms is is, uh, human moderation. And unfortunately, human moderation requires people who are properly trained. And I don't think that any of these social media platforms are prepared to properly train people the way they need to be. You know what? This is a, a, a good segue into uh, what happened about 10 years ago, about the same time your book came out, David. Uh, there was a report that was released, released by DHS, and it was called, uh, well, it was a report about right-wing extremism in the United States. And the collective outrage by the conservative entertainment complex was loud and sharp. I mean, they they started to call themselves right-wing extremists, and they just went just indiscriminately batshit for a a good year because of that particular report. It's kind of a, a case study in what happens when you actually try to move toward doing something about this kind of rhetoric. Is that what we can expect uh, going forward when it comes to uh, uh, the kind of language and the kind of policies that Trump uh, and and his uh, copycats use? Unfortunately, yes, because uh, there's no uh, likelihood that Fox News is going to go away or the whole right-wing media apparatus is going to go away. And that's the main font of this stuff. That's where this stuff's originating. And yeah, and it's actually Fox News is one of the bodies that I'm thinking of when I'm talking about uh, people um, uh, purveying false information uh, because they do it 24-7. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a font of garbage mm-hmm. and, and, and misinformation that just flows out into, uh, you know, the minds of a really large chunk of the American public and uh, and it really pollutes the, mis- the information stream generally. It pollutes our discourse. And, you know, we need to understand that we've had this situation for at least 15 years where we have a, a, a fake news operation. They call themselves news, but they're a propaganda operation and yep. have been for uh, just obviously since at least the, the mid to late 90s and um, and and really nakedly so under Donald Trump to the point that you know the the false information is now just a, a steady feature so uh, what do we do about that I don't know but uh, we do need I, I don't because I don't think I, I don't think we're actually going to be able to have the discussion until Fox News's lies get turned off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. And because one of the other things that uh, is running concurrent with the specific kind of language that's being used is the fact that uh, I believe that the Trump crisis and even Trump himself is a consequence of the brainwashing that goes on by Fox News Channel. I mean, there's an entire generation of Fox News viewers who have been systematically indoctrinated since around 1998 when the whole thing launched. I mean, how do we deprogram those? I mean, many of our parents, actually, many of our close relatives and so on are now disciples of this Fox News propaganda uh, campaign. I mean, how do we deprogram all those people who've been sucked into that vortex? I think most of us have actually had this problem in our own families and have dealt with it around our Thanksgiving dinner tables. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think it's actually very common. And I, if I had the answer, I would bottle it and because <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the uh, it's it's really a problem. All I can say is that you know at some point we need to wake up as a country and realize that we have this for-profit propaganda organ that is deliver that is making money by deliberately sowing division within the country. It it is devoted to coaching half of the country to hate the other half and it and it does that relentlessly 24/7. Yep. You know? Yeah. And in fact, Michael Savage today uh, warned Trump. I mean, he actually issued a warning on his show to the president saying that if he continues to slam white supremacists too much, he's going to lose votes. I mean, they're actually just out there going, hey, you know what? We got to make sure we hang on to the white supremacist vote. So can you tone it down a little bit, Mr. President? <laughs> I mean, this is how far down that rabbit hole they are. Well, it's as we've learned, it's actually that's not a small constituency. You know, uh, by the way, I wish I had a screen grab of your face palm that you just did as I was re- talking about the Michael Savage thing is genius. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, well, yeah, he's he is a constant uh, face palm. I mean, I love the book that he put out a few years ago about how to stop the Civil War. Because uh, it was actually a, a, a book about why we should have a civil war, <laughs> but yeah. uh, and the and, it, and his solution was uh, let's just go out and and destroy liberalism and and install uh, the radical right in power and and mm-hmm. then we'll. Civil War. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, yeah. sometimes I get really edgy when people start throwing around the concept of a civil war, mainly because uh, I think those of us who have studied the history of that era uh, understand how deadly it was and how terrible it was, what the cost was of that sort of thing, and, and how if we superimpose that, and obviously the Civil War had maybe the most noble of causes, and so I'm not putting down the point of fighting that war. I'm just saying if we fight it now... It's going to be a, a horrendous sort of apocalypse, you know, given the weaponry that we have, given that, you know, it's just we're in the modern age. But at the same time, I almost think that there is a civil war already kind of going on and it's in the form of an information war. It's not a fighting war. Yeah. And it's basically who can outflank the other side using information right. and language. And fortunately, we happen to be on a side that is pretty securely tethered to the truth, reality, logic, all the rest of it, while the other side is just playing with propaganda. And while we may insult them for doing it, it's actually a, a, a really winnable strategy. If you're dealing with fiction, anything goes and you can say anything you want to win the argument. And, and they're being allowed right. to do that in a certain respect, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think unfortunately we're also the side that is uh, mostly in denial about yeah. uh, the extent of this. Uh, I think uh, a lot of liberals, particularly a lot of the, you know, kind, decent folks who live in the world of reality, uh, are, are pretty much in denial about how bad it's getting out there. Yeah. That I don't think they understand how deeply, particularly people in urban areas, I don't think they understand just how viscerally and deeply 
people in rural areas hate them. I mean, they fucking hate us yeah. and want to kill us. I mean, that's what I, I go on these message boards all the time, and I'm reading all these messages from these guys who can barely wait to start shooting liberals. You know, as barely wait to start going to the cities and mowing down the uh, the problems and and the Latinos, and um, and so and it's so it's really um, disturbing to me. And look, I mean, I understand we don't want to actually have to admit that there's this really un- ugly underside to us. Um, yeah, that there is. Um, that there is a lot going on that we don't, uh, you know, mm. I, I don't think we really want to acknowledge that this is happening to us because we'd kind of like to be able to continue with our, you know, d- democracy the way we did it for, for decades and, and, you know, have a, have a nice conversation with the opposite side. Uh, the opposite side isn't really interested in having a conversation with us anymore. Just ask Barack Obama. He kept ha- reaching out to the other side and yeah. kept getting a blunt back and, uh, for his thanks. And finally, near the end of his presidency, he figured it out that, he, that it's just not going to work. Uh, that, that the only thing these guys understand is power, raw power, and the only way to defeat them is power. So... Uh, ultimately, you know, how do we deal with it? I, I think that first we got to recognize that this is a tremendous uh, challenge to democracy itself, that this is a threat to democracy itself. And it's not, I'm just not, I'm not being just hyperbolic and alarmist, that this is actually threatening mm-hmm. our democracy. And so we need to get out there and defend our democracy, and we need to do it in mass. And the way to defend democracy is with democracy. So um, get everybody you know who's of voting age out to vote. Get everybody out to the polls. Uh, I think that this will turn around if we have a large enough uh, voting base that actually makes it to the polls on election day because uh, I think we can sweep these guys out of office. We need to. And that needs to be the other component of it is recognition that the Republican Party has become um, uh, not just cancerous but metastatic yeah. and is going to destroy us. They need to be taken out of power and not permitted to return to power until uh, they can demonstrate that they are willing to once again participate in a democracy. Because it's very, become very clear the Republicans do not – uh, care to participate in democracy anymore. And that's really the biggest challenge that we have. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And you know what? That side has now, and, and you know, sometimes I hate to use terms like sides. Like, we're all Americans. But the fact of the matter is that, that there's one side of the political debate. There's basically 62 million voters out there have lost touch with right and wrong. And it's not just a matter of who's right on the issues and who's wrong on the issues and, and policy decisions and so on. But the awful truth is that a good half of the political debate in this country has just lost touch with right and wrong. Is it, are you seeing the same thing? Or Well, uh, I think right and wrong, you know, I, I've always been a person who believes in ethics rather than morals. Yeah. And, uh, and ethics is a product of logic and reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you, but when, when you can't even agree on factuality and, and what constitutes logic and reason yeah. uh then yeah you're not going to have ethics either so the, the whole the whole structure crumbles yeah uh when 
you reach this stage where you can't even understand what's true. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's really the most devastating part of what's happened to us is that um, we have not just politicians who man- try to manipulate reality and what's true and what's not. We have a media infrastructure that's willing to uh, facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really kind of the disturbing part. And, and maybe that's one of the other conversations we need to have is that uh, you know we all have always considered the press I mean the press has uh, protections written right into the Constitution and the press is considered the fourth estate for a reason mm-hmm. because it's it's a fundamental part of our democracy but what's actually happened to the press in the last 30 years is that it's become a uh, plaything for profiteers so what? So everything that happens in the press is built around profitability, and it is no longer a uh, functioning. No, the people who own the press and operate the press no longer have any sense of civic responsibility or civic duty. They're just out to make money. Mm-hmm. And this is. Uh, I think we need to get the money out of out of our media. I think it needs to be. You know, uh, uh, maybe we should put limits on the amount of money you can make in a in a media dissemination operation. Uh, cap your profits at ten percent, and everything else has to uh, be uh, uh, funneled back into the the company itself. Because for me, certainly, I, I grew up in a time when newspapers were making seven to ten percent profit annually because they were all locally owned, and that was the way the press worked. Because yeah, you know. Back in the day, uh, uh, investing in newspapers was like uh, investing in bonds. It was not a spectacular return, but it was a solid annual. You could count on it every year, 7 to 10% mm-hmm. return. Uh, and, um, you know, and that was the way it operated until uh, I started see. I started working for corporate papers in the mid-'80s, and we suddenly had to start making 15% profit and 20% profit. Mm-hmm. And, in order to satisfy the the boards, and suddenly that meant that well our newsrooms were getting gutted because that was how we we balanced that ledger to make those profits. And what gets cut first, of course, is investigative journalists and consumer reporters, the people who who, who are most likely to embarrass the publisher. Uh, but but you know, and pretty soon after a while, you know, all these little mom and pop papers that uh, used to operate out there. They're all reduced. They're not once they get bought by uh, uh, corporations, they uh, pretty much uh, turn into like two or three person staffs. Yeah, and they're lucky if they can cover the local football games and city council. So you know, and that's uh, that's not serving people anymore. And that's a lot of why newspapers cease to be profitable because uh, why people turn to the internet so readily was because. Uh, the newspaper business had become uh, really messed up in terms of actually servicing the people it was supposed to be servicing, and that's mm-hmm. the general public. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what changes can the press make in terms of covering these gun massacres, like we saw over the weekend? And, and you know, there was another instance in uh, in uh, McLean, Virginia, 
this afternoon with uh, they had to evacuate the USA Today building because there was someone who uh, was maybe carrying a firearm, something along those lines. But I mean, it seems to me as if there's got to be a new way because it seems like the press goes to the same script every single damn time. Um, so I don't, I, I'm kind of at a loss in terms of how how the press can actually go about talking about this in a different way. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, other than just kind of commiserating, because yeah, yeah. It's, it is, uh, I, I don't have any answers to that, uh, Bob. It's been one of those problems that, I mean, after Sandy Hook, I thought, okay, this has got to be a turning point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <sighs> Nothing happened. And then, and then Las Vegas, you know, my niece was in that crowd in Las Vegas and I, she barely wow. escaped with her life. And so, you know, um, I, uh, so, you know, eventually this is all going to touch all of us personally. And it certainly has touched me personally. Yeah. Uh, but I think eventually it's going to touch every single person in the country personally because it's happening at such a, a rapid rate. And honestly, I think it's actually going to get worse yeah. uh, over the next year, particularly because we have a president who isn't going to. It, rather than trying to tamp it down and even do anything serious about tamping it down, he's going to keep inviting it, going to keep provoking it. Yeah. Uh, especially if it looks like his, you know, presidency is threatened. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 think I, I, I really, Michael, I hope it is. Well, I, I think Michael Cohen is right. That yeah. I think we're in real danger of not having a peaceful transition if this man's defeated at the polls. Yep. Uh, and uh, a lot of it has to do with these people who are ginned up talking about a civil war are going to be ready to go out and start shooting people. Yep. And I, I, obviously, I don't really think that he can succeed with a coup. Mm-hmm. Of course, I've been wrong about stuff like this before, but I don't think that that's uh, a likelihood. But but I do think that there's going to be a lot of people get hurt. Wow. wow. So uh, one last question for you, David. Um, and, and this kind of has come up on social media today, and we've seen uh, uh, hints and stories about it coming up over the, the past year or so. And that's with regard to this uh, conspiracy theory uh, collective, the, the Q collective. It seems like just as, as soon as they get uh, marginalized, they somehow come back again, like this horrible form of cancer. It just never stops coming back. And and now they're turning, they're, they're actually starting to infiltrate into the the ranks of the red hats with all the trump supporters at the rallies and so on um should we be concerned at all because obviously their theories are just absolutely silly and ridiculous but they seem to be resonating i mean should we be concerned about this uh q collective yes uh mostly because they have so many cult-like aspects to them that uh you know i'm afraid we're gonna have a uh, an event where, you know, a Jonestown type event yeah. Uh, where, yeah, there's a lot of people hurt because um, they go to really crazy places with their conspiracy theories. Yeah. You know, the FBI just uh, did uh, publish a memo out of its Phoenix office uh, last week uh, talking about how conspiracism actually drives uh, these extremist acts, these acts of violence, that the conspiracy theories themselves, that it's not the ideology necessarily anymore, that it's actually these conspiracy theories that are fueling uh, a lot of these acts. And uh, that's absolutely right. That's uh, that's a real key part to this dynamic that we're in, the online radicalization. So... uh, 
how do we uh, get a hold on that? I don't know. Do, do yeah. you sometimes do you sometimes entertain the idea of just saying, "Hey, get, let's just shut down the internet. Can we just can we <laughs> just shut it down? Let's shut it down for a while just so we can see what the hell is going on." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Well, that's yes. It's. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's part of what is makes it such a conundrum. I mean, honestly, this is what we're ultimately kind of talking about here is authoritarianism mm. and fascism. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, uh, fascism, we know that it's a really key component to their strategy has always been to use democracy's own instruments to destroy it. And among those instruments, of course, are free speech and, and openness and having an open society. So if you can use those, turn those things against it as a means of actually tearing that society apart, mm -hmm. uh, then that's the ends that they want. So if we want to protect free speech, we need to understand that there is... Um, that there's a lot of subtlety involved in actually how we do that. It's not right. the way that the, the libertarians uh, want to sort of propose a model of free speech isn't one that actually has uh, an effective base in reality. So, uh, and it's more likely to result in authoritarianism than it is in uh, um actually uh, an open society yeah well on the upside i keep hoping and got my fingers crossed that uh some of these groups that are infiltrating the republican i mean the mainstream republican party uh yeah. are going to ultimately be like the poison pill that ends up killing it or at least I see the possibility of the Republican Party splitting into two groups where there's the mainstream Republican Party, which happens to be a lot of center right conservatives, more or less never Trumpers and so on. And then the fringe Trumpers forming their own party somehow. And there may be being a power struggle between the two as to which becomes the, the more dominant. Um, is that something that uh, is in the offing in the not too distant future? Uh, something uh, something that could be positive, ultimately, out of all of this. Well, yeah, the only problem is that those business-type uh, Republicans actually have real deep uh, authoritarian streaks themselves. Yeah. So um, that's where we go. That's where it goes sideways. Mm -hmm. uh, authoritarianism often winds up running into authoritarianism uh, fully on its own. And I know that seems... Um, <clears throat> counterintuitive, but it's the way the real world works. It's where, you know, Ayn Rand eventually takes us into that tunnel where oh, yeah. uh, she justifies uh, uh, the deaths of 150 people in a train because they all deserve, had it coming, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, and that's where libertarianism often goes. Mm -hmm. So. Um, is it as strange that we're all kind of retweeting people like David Frum and, and Bill Crystal these days, given that, uh, you know, just uh, throughout the Bush years, as you were at Crooks and Liars, we were all talking about how terrible they were and how we're retweeting all of them. The strange bedfellows, huh? I, I always had, I, honestly, Bob, I always had a certain amount of uh, skepticism even about the Huffington Post because of Ariana's past, so. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this, David, just as we wrap up here, what's your, uh, what's your next project? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Alt America, you published that back in, uh, 2017. Are you working on something new? I have a book coming out in June of next year titled the blue pill, 
uh, an antidote to the conspiracy theories that are killing us. Oh, and my God, I can't wait. Hopefully give people a toolkit for how to deal with this stuff in their own lives, because I think everybody we know uh, knows somebody that's gone down these rabbit holes and they want to know how can I pull them out. Uh, we, I don't have all the answers, but I have some, and hopefully we can get people thinking and talking about how we do this. So, oh, my God, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to talk about it again. In fact, uh, let me know when the book's ready to come out or whenever you want to come back on and, and go over some of these things that are going to be uh, in the next book because that – I mean, I have just, I've been following Alex Jones and a lot of these guys on the conspiracy conspiracy theory side of things for a while now. So it's kind of, it's kind of something that uh, both shocks and frightens me and also uh, just constantly fascinates me. <laughs> that cult, yeah. that cult of conspiracy with Q and uh, Alex Jones and there's always infighting between them. It's just an amazing thing to watch sometimes if you don't look at how terrible it is at the same time. <laughs> Well, it used to be kind of amusing, uh, but it's not a joke anymore. Right. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Well, my friend, it was great finally talking to you. And, of course, you always have an open invitation to appear here for whatever it's worth. So <laughs> please uh, keep in touch. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, definitely, Bob. We'll be in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller, America's original sexy liberal, if you don't count Miller Fillmore. Come join us for the Happy Hour podcast. You're probably already doing plenty of drinking and swearing with this stain of a president in office. Well, join me and my celebrity and comedian friends for a raunchy, uncensored ride through politics and pop culture. Pants optional. 